0: Hey everyone, and welcome to KD Lounge, the best source for everything Cadena. We are kicking off our first show ever with Will Martino, co founder of the Cadena blockchain and visionary behind the ChainWeb. But first, some news on KD Lounge. Version 2 of our website is now live and it's running entirely on the Flux nodes. A big thank you to them. Also, Team Peace IDEO is now live. Go to our website and register for KYC with our partners, Fractal. Okay, guys, time to jump in with Will Martino. Hey, Will. Uh, Welcome to Lounge. Thank you for being with us. Uh, It's an honor to have you for our first ever episode. So to begin with, maybe for people who don't know you yet, we can start with a little background from yourself. Like, what did you do to get here and what led you to Karina? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Alfonso.
1: And I'm excited to you know, have this podcast going. I'm definitely going to be listening to it uh, as it keeps going. Am I the first guest for it? Yeah, you are the awesome. first one. We wanted to cool. start big. Yeah, no, I remember the uh, Katie Launch guys, uh, we, we DM on, uh, on Discord and they pinged me and they were saying, it's like, oh, do you want to be a guest? I'm like, have me be the first guest. Like, let's just do this. So I was <laughs> curious if I actually managed to do it on time because I had to push it back a week. So I'm Mo Martino. I'm the uh, president and co-founder of Kanana. And yeah, I guess, okay, my story of how I got into crypto is a long one. It starts back in 20, God, 2012, 2013. I got a job at the Securities and Exchange Commission to be their, effectively their quote unquote, their like resident young hacker. I was brought in by by former boss who is kind of the textbook definition of a mad scientist, Arizona (laughs) Kurtosh. And he started this internal startup inside of the Securities and Exchange Commission because they had this problem of... They have a ton of data that they get from banks, from automated trading, and they don't have the ability to actually go through it, or they didn't back then. They were actually putting it into Excel, and Excel has a million-line limit for spreadsheets, and they get way more than a million lines of data from the banks that they regulate uh, uh, like in just a couple minutes of data. So it was a big problem, and there was this internal group that got started to solve it. Um, I ended up being uh, one of the lead engineers on this project called the National Exam Analytics Tool, which rolled out to, it rolled out nationwide, and now it's on version 4 or 5, and it is one of the backbones of the examination program at the SEC, and it allows them to suck up the data and then uh, you know, uh, do reports on it that are standardized and also combine third-party pricing data to identify any potential issues. Um, and when I was there, Valerie started the crypto working group. And send out an email saying, "Hey, I need a uh, like a tech lead for it." Um, when we when we found this thing, like, so someone in the commission who understands the technology but doesn't own any coins. And at the time, Bitcoin was about at about sixty. And I was just like, I'm getting ready to invest in it, and so, you know, finally have some money. I'm like, yeah, I think I want to actually invest in this thing. And then this you know crypto working group comes up, and I'm just like you know, I'm gonna actually go be a tech lead, and that means that I can't buy Bitcoin at sixty. <laughs> and uh, so for the first, I think, year of that group, I was the tech lead, and we you know, did some very early cases on it. But it was more about just education, figuring out how to even think about uh, cryptocurrency from the point of view of a regulator. After that, I went to uh, well, actually I went to hacker school, which is now called Recurse Center, just to go and like to go writers retreat for programmers. And uh, I went mm-hmm. to just like fall in love with coding again because I was kind of burnt out from the government because the government is kind of rough. And uh, learned Haskell there and ended up getting a job at JP Morgan um, with uh, under Stuart Popejoy, my co-founder, who is the CEO of Canada. And this was a R&D group that was formed by the CTO of the investment bank. And it was tasked with, uh, you know, identifying and understanding emerging technologies. And very quickly, it turned into something that was looking at blockchain and we ended up founding the Blockchain Center of Excellence at JP Morgan. So, him and I, and his, uh, you know, the rest of the people that uh, he hired for that desk, ended up building out the uh, JP Morgan claim version zero. This is a project called Juno. It rolled out in development for international settlements between, I think it was Japan and London, and ended up actually being open sourced by JP Morgan. And then that formed the basis of Kadena when we left, because when we open-sourced it, the way that it worked was they actually assigned all the IP rights to me under my name, and then I had to publish it on GitHub. This was because of some lawyer nonsense about how like they were doing open-source at the time, but it was a boon for us because it meant that we had this IP that we could just found off of. Yeah. So um, we were at JP Morgan, and we've been doing technical due diligence on blockchains for a couple of years at that point. I built out uh, uh, Juno, and we built it mainly to understand the technology. Um, It did have a small smart contract language. It was sort of list-based. It also was EVM compatible. And it was really about, there's only so much you can get out of understanding technology if you don't actually build it. And we're developers, so we're just going to build our own and see what the problems are, see what the sticking points are. And along the way, we saw literally everyone came through. So um, you know, IBM Fabric back before it was Hyperledger, actually the original Hyperledger back before the name got bought by IBM. I mean, Vitalik came through at one point. This is before Ethereum <laughs> had even launched. So like every industrial and kind of like newer smart contract public chain came through. And you know, we got to ask them a bunch of questions. And we ended up collecting these kind of core questions that we knew needed to be answered for blockchain technology to ever be appropriate for industrial use. And after we've been doing this for a couple of years and we had this project and it was open source and we had the IP for it, uh, you know, I went to Stuart and I was like, I think we can leave and found a company around this. There was, some pol- there was some political nonsense going on. So it was kind of uncertain if the group was gonna continue. And we we're just like, all right, let's like leave and go and do this. So for the first year, when we founded Kadena, we were focused on smart contracts. Um, Stuart always, has always been, it will always be the lead for PACT or smart contract language. And uh, this private blockchain, that was based off of Juno and really it was, cadena was founded around industrial private blockchain applications. And about a year into it, we end up realizing that maybe about nine, 10 months into it, we end up realizing that, you know, without having a public chain that runs packed, we're not going to be able to get the industrial adoption that we were going after mm-hmm. because you know, it just, it doesn't work with how the community works. Like it, the industry and enterprise adoption is just way too slow for us to ever get traction without it having a public chain as well. And this was back before Cardano had done its raise. This is back before Tezos had done its raise. This is actually back before the first DAO got hacked on Ethereum that we start putting you know, together this idea of, okay, like what would it look like to put PACT on top of a public chain? And PACT is really, like, I like to say that, you know, uh, people come for ChainWeb, they come for the scalability of proof of work and solving this core problem that's been open for a decade, but they stay for PACT because PACT is the thing that really solves the rest of the problems. And it's the thing that's designed around this concept of blockchains are very hard to iterate on in production. We've seen this with Ethereum, where uh, you know, Vitalik has a very good blog post out about the road not taken, and kind of mistakes they I made. Saw in- I saw in- that, I yeah. It's really good, everyone. should Really totally good, it. Yeah. And a lot of it, they just can't change anymore. Or very little of it, they can really, like the core stuff, they really can't change that much because blockchains aren't like Web2 technologies where you can move fast and you can break things and you can break apis and it's centralized because it's decentralized and because of all the exchange integrations and the wallet integrations and everything else that goes into it it's very hard to iterate on a blockchain after you've launched it so we knew going into this that we needed to do a ton of the heavy lifting early on because once we launched the chain we weren't going to be able to change it very much um, we can iterate on pack the language a little bit but the core of it needed to all be there and the core of consensus needed to all be there. And if it wasn't, we were not really going to be able to, you know, upgrade the chain later in a dramatic way without losing the entire community and everything that's already been built on that chain. Yeah. So, you know, the founding principle behind Kadena was you know, really thinking about what industrial adoption would look like in 2030, and then building all the things that we knew it would need to get there um, up front, and then launching that product. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly, you know, after a couple of years, we've realized that, you know, focusing on the public chain first is the way to go, that enterprise adoption is just going to be way, way, way too slow, and just have fully pivoted into being a public blockchain company. And yeah, that was back, that brings us to about 2018, 2020. Um, and I know we're going to be talking about ChainWeb and uh, proof of work and scaling later, so I'll save that whole story for that.
0: Yeah, actually, I was, I was pivoting into that because you, you mentioned that uh, Vitalik, Vitalik blog post, which I, I was reading and I, I was thinking about Karina and how, uh, Vitalik, from the get-go, he was thinking about Proof-of-Stake, right? He was thinking of doing it Proof-of-Stake, but he started with Proof-of-Work because there was no framework for the Proof-of-Stake back then. And I, I wanted to ask you, like, you guys are very uh, very high on Proof-of-Work. What is your opinion of that? Do, do you see any, any validity to Proof-of-Stake? Is there a place for it? Or do you actually believe that Proof-of-Work is the only way to go? I have I have mixed
1: feelings on proof of stake. Um, There's, we'll start with just like the purely technical. The reason for proof of work is because we figured out how to have a scalable blockchain, and it required proof of work. And this is a truly, you know, a horizontally scalable, a partitioned blockchain. And uh, like the word sharding in crypto is really, really, really badly defined. For the most part, it means uh, a deck. And it's just a DAG, like a, uh, you know, a directed acyclic graph. And a lot of people use something like this. And that's what they say is scalable. The thing with DAGs are they aren't scalable. They're scaled as in they're faster because a DAG allows you to run transactions that aren't, uh, that don't interact with each other, that aren't causally related at the same time. So instead of with Ethereum, where it's a sequential thing where you have to do one and then the other, and then the other, um, you can run some transactions at the same time. The problem is, as anyone who's had a multi-core CPU before knows, and you know, especially if you do gaming, you end up having one CPU that is running at 100%, and the others are running at 40%. And that's because in programming, it's very hard to actually have an application that is fully parallelizable. There's you know, Omdel's law. There's another law that I'm forgetting the name of that also talks about this. But in effect, you only ever get about maybe a 20x performance bump off of just a sequential exec- execution technique. So what you really want is something that is horizontally scalable. This is what the big players in Web2 do, uh, like Google, where you have these entire farms of servers that are running in parallel, and that are, you know, that are keeping uh, each other updated and appraised of what their state is, but they're still able to scale out horizontally. So if they need more scale, they just deploy more servers. And it can very seamlessly do this. And that is the, you know, when it comes from like a tech perspective, like that is how you scale. Like that means that you are scalable because you can just throw more servers at it and it can get bigger. And I still don't know how you can have a partitioned, uh, you know, like the way that ours works is that we have multiple chains that all run in parallel and we can add more chains later. You can't do that type of thing where and have it be asynchronous with proof of stake. And this is a highly technical topic that maybe this nut gets cracked at some point. I've tried to crack this nut myself. But you end up having something like the closest you end up getting is near, which isn't really sharded. I mean, it's sharded because crypto defines sharded as everything, but it's not a partitioned thing. It's actually one big data structure. And then they just uh, lop off the ends of the Merkle tree at certain regions and say, okay, this is shard one and this runs on some servers and this is shard two and it runs on some servers. But you can have a transaction that goes from shard one to shard two, that the user doesn't have to actually you know, move funds or really even think about like what shard are they on, what chain are they on. Mm-hmm. And the, like, that's really nice from a UX perspective. It's a really incredibly user-friendly DAG. The problem is that if you have like Uniswap running on top of NIR, you're going to have transactions from all the shards coming into that one spot where Uniswap is running. And you're going to have, uh, if that is going to actually constrain the overall performance of the directed acyclic graph that Mir is. So it's it's sharded at the end from the point of view of there's like regions that like run in parallel, but really from a conceptual um you know execution point of view, it is not really that. It's actually more of a DAG than it is like a partitioned farm of parallel environments. So that's why we want proof of work. It's just because, you know, we were looking at all the different consensus mechanisms. We could have hit the market years earlier if we had gotten proof of stake because we already had Juno, which is now, which then was scalable BFT and is now called Kuro. We already had a private blockchain that was high performance. It was running three to 4,000 transactions a second. And we had a smart contract language that ran on top of it. tax. We could have invented a, uh, you know, staking model and actually just installed that into a Kuro instance and been running with 500 validators globally replicated, probably in under a year, um, or at least been in a testnet in under a year, instead of spending you know, two and a half, three years building out and launching this parallel proof of work thing. The problem is that at some point, like, that doesn't scale anymore. And, you know, you see, you see this with uh, the current uh, kind of cream of the crop of the proof of stake networks that are scalable, is that they're scalable at, like, The way that I judge scalability is, or like a user to judge scalability is really like looking at fees, like, are the fees low? And if the fees are low, then that means that either it isn't saturated, the network isn't saturated, or that it can't be saturated. And for a lot of projects, it's that they aren't saturated yet. So Solana is a decent example. Every once in a while, Solana gets completely saturated and the fees go through the roof. Avalanche is experiencing this too. And the thing is, like, when you have a scalable chain, you need to have a... You know uh, like a succinct explanation of how do you add more throughput to your network and otherwise it's just scaled it's not scalable and the way that you know the way that kadena does it is we now run 20 chains that are braided together into one network and if we need more throughput we can hard fork to 50 chains and then after that we can hard fork to 100 chains and after that we can do 500 and a thousand and there isn't a theoretical limit for how many chains we can fork to the practical limit I'd put it at is probably a million to 10 million chains, but that would be, you know, 20 years out after we have massive like global adoption. I don't know at that point, you know, 20 million transactions a second on a decentralized globally replicated network.
0: Yeah, that's that seems that seems high too so hard proof to think stick about.
1: Right like, now. But Stake does have some like really good advantages when it comes to um, fundraising and control. And this is especially why like the West Coast species love proof of stick, mm-hmm. is that they can go in and buy big chunks of the token early on for you know, low amounts, then go and you know, help them to get listed and to get popular and for the price to go through the roof. You know, Solana is famous for this money came in and bought a big lump of their, uh, the Solana tokens in a down round right before they launched. And then after that, you know, Sam from FDX came in and he bought up most of the tokens that were being sold on the market when the investors became liquid and were dumping. So between like Samani and like Sam at FTX, like they own most of. The, I think they probably own a majority stake of the voting rights. Yeah, but
0: that, and that, then the, the, central, the centralization is the decentralization goes goes away, right? So it's. Not I ideal. would argue
1: yes, hmm. um, but that being said, like yeah, West Coast VC's do like this, and it's uh, it, it's an element of control, and I I suspect that in by 2030 we'll see the rent seeking tendencies of. Uh, Certain players uh, start to really come out, and these will be you know, um, changes to how the protocol works, so that the fees for transactions start to go up. Because also, if you're, you know, a big staker, you're also collecting most of the fees. Yeah. And either like they can be fees, that if the fees get burnt, that's the same as if the fees get paid to you, because you're like one way or another, it's coming back to people who own the most. So proof of stake does have the advantage of that control element. I don't like it, but it does have that advantage. It also has the advantage of maintaining, it's easier to launch a billion dollar market cap cryptocurrency with proof of stake, because you end up having, you know, people aren't selling and trading as much as they are just staking and holding. And that's really what proof of stake is designed for. And the energy thing was kind of tacked on later because initially like proof of stake was supposed to be about performance because it does give you, you know, better finality and better performance than the traditional proof of work network. But once the scalability idea that you could scale a proof of stake network kind of got discarded a bit, like just sort of forgotten, then it was all about green, 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 green. Yeah. And it's pretty debatable exactly like how green proof of stake actually is. And I don't even really want to get into the green aspect of, proof of work, crypto, because it's kind of missing the point on the whole problem when it comes to global warming. So it's just an easy, it's an easy punching bag for the media because no one really like, likes to defend crypto. So yeah. yeah.
0: But do you you think that might be a problem in the future for Kadena? Like the the narrative of of not being green?
1: Um, We're efficient. And that's the key. Is, you know, like Bitcoin, what I like to say, especially when we were doing our first fundraising rounds, is that if Bitcoin could, you know, service, um, you know, 100 million transactions a second, the amount of energy that it used wouldn't be a problem. The problem with Bitcoin is that it can only do you know, I think five or 10 transactions a second with that energy. And if you can solve the efficiency problem, then we can just talk about, you know, proof of work is great for the coming generation of, uh, you know, especially solar and wind and things that are not as predictable from an energy um, uh, supply point of view. Crypto is great at absorbing that extra. And I think long-term, you know, 2030, 2040, you're going to see proof of work being the thing that kind of gets tacked onto kind of major installations of, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, like wind farms and solar arrays get to see this. And they only start mining when they have excess energy that Mm -hmm. can't be dumped back onto the grid. Because, you know, there's so much energy being produced by the sun being out by the wind blowing or whatever, that okay, we have excess energy, we need to do something with it, well, we can do some mining in the meantime. And I suspect that that's how things are going to go. There's a huge, the global warming is a dramatically huge problem, but I am much more of the opinion that this is like, you have, like the governments have to actually get off their asses and actually start pricing things correctly and not, you know, just kind of like keep kicking the can
0: down the road. Yeah. Uh, taking that, that stance on the energy that you, you, just, you just said, uh, so you, I, I heard you on an, another interview where you, you said that you can add more uh, chains to the, to, the, to the chain web. And your energy costs stays basically the same. yeah I would like if you can explain it a bit how that works, like how are you are you mining to like double the chains, but the energy stays the same this is the, This is like why we stayed with proof of work, and this is the weird
1: freaking part of like proof of work and how it works is that it's hard to describe exactly, but the, the gist of it is that you know, 95 to 99% of the resource consumption of uh, Chainweb of Cadena is in mining. Like to run the network, it's the miners that are using the vast majority of the energy to run the network. And that remaining bit is used by the nodes to replicate the network and to relay transactions. And that amount of energy that's being used by the nodes to replicate and relay is pretty freaking small. It's usually like, the estimate's like between 5 and 1% of the total energy consumption. and the hash rate, so the amount of mining that is, you know, the global amount of mining that goes into cadena now you can talk about that as the hash rate. So how many hashes per second are you doing? The hash rate and the number of chains that are being run are not related constants. You can have a hundred chains run at the exact same hash rate as we have now and not have the security diminish. Um, this is because of how uh, like the law of large numbers, which basically says that the more samples you have from some random space, the closer you get to the, you know, the true value. So in, like, to translate that into proof of work, it's that, um, so like you know, with Bitcoin, you have to wait six blocks for you know, 99.9, whatever percent certainty that the transaction is going to stay there. Each block is a sample from this uh, probabilistic space that is the hash rate. And you need six samples to hit you know, the 99% security bar. You know, if you were to have, you know, Ethereum, for example, has, I think it's what, 15 second block times. And there's a little, they're a little bit weird because they have ghosts and like this, like uncles and some other stuff. But, you know, there's at some point you, if you have a block time, that's too low. You end up just with a bunch of orphans and a bunch of wasted Mm -hmm. blocks, like things that got mined, but then don't get included. So that's just waste. And so you, like, as we go from, let's say, you know, 10 to 20 chains, which we've already done, you end up having two times the amount of samples of mined blocks from the hash rate, uh, in the same period of time, which is actually because that's more samples, you actually have more security around, there's way more to it than that. And it's really Mm -hmm. hard to do without like a whiteboard, and kind of talk about how like the dependency and the graph structure works. But you can kind of think of it like that, if you have the more blocks you have in a fixed period of time, the more samples you have, and the more security um, you have around, like, is this the longest chain? And the main question is just, okay, how many orphans are you going to get as you get more and more blocks in the same given period of time? And because ChainWeb operates in this partitioned, asynchronous environment, the orphan rate, theoretically, and in practice, we've also seen this, doesn't actually go up as you increase the number of chains. It actually goes, in theory, it should go down. We suspect that it'll probably remain about the same Mm -hmm. because the odds that, to have an orphan, you and I have to mine the same block at the same time. And if there's a hundred chains versus 10 chains, it's less likely that you and I are going to pick the same chain and then mine the same block on that chain in the same period of time. So the idea is that actually, as we expand, the orphan rate goes down and the security goes up because we have more, you know, like there's, so there's less waste because there's less orphans and security goes up because we're having more samples from this, you know, we're having more blocks from this fixed period of time. And the crazy part of proof of work is that you can split up that hash rate as much as you want, and it's not a problem. So, the, re- the way that the energy use doesn't go up is that we're using the exact same hash rate for, let's say, a 10 versus a 100 chain network. We use the exact same hash rate, which is one tenth the difficulty for the 100 chain network. But because you're getting more samples, you actually have higher security at the 100 chains. And because the mining, the hash rate is, you know, ninety nine percent of the energy that gets used. When you go from ten to hundred, your energy use overall barely changes. The the nodes, the replicating nodes, they use more energy because you might need a few more servers per node yeah. to replicate a hundred chain network. But that's only one percent of the overall energy use. And you know, like, so let's say, it's, you know, you need ten times as many servers to run a hundred chain network per node. So you're going to end up with maybe. You know, maybe like a four percent increase in overall energy use in return for a hundred times the overall throughput. Yeah, and
0: yeah. that's the crazy part of purple one. Yeah, okay, because you only have to have more nodes, but the, in terms of hash, you don't need more from, from for that. Yeah, that's amazing. I, actually, now I got it. Okay, uh, so being a bit, a bit, a bit now to where we are now in cadena. So uh, until now, you have been building this system and this framework, and now finally we get to see some projects coming online, right? Something I would like to, to touch base on you is what kind of applications do you think uh, are coming to Kadena? Or what kind of applications would you like to see on Kadena, uh, to on this next quarter, for example?
1: Next quarter, definitely NFTs. Um, I've been working a lot on the Marmalade front end and on the contracts. Yep. One of the things about Cadena is that we don't want to be in-housing our own. We don't want to like have the flagship NFT platform. We don't want to have the flagship IDO platform. We don't want to have the uh, decentralized exchange platform, the flagship one. Like we want to build out core infrastructure and then the community go and run with it. So we've been working on Marmalade for. Got on do four or five, six months now. And there's a few different NFT platforms that have either launched or they're pretty close to launching that are built on top of it. And you know, similar to with Kadana Swap, where you know, we put together the concept of what a swap platform would look like on the platform and you know, a group came together and we're like, let's pick this up and run with it. And that's Cadex. That's great. And uh, similar is like what I'm hoping to see with Marmalade this quarter. I know of at least two, I think three projects that are building on top of The Marmalade infrastructure and Marmalade is really cool from an NFT perspective because it allows you to, you know, the phrase is make your own marketplace, which Mm -hmm. is the longer description of it is it allows you to have custom policies for transacting and the policies uh, definition is the thing that creates a marketplace. So uh, people who are more familiar with traditional finance, like equities are traded different than fixed income. And mm-hmm. it's the rules around how those things are traded that create those unique marketplaces. So right now we have um, you know a fixed quote uh, policy as a demonstration of how you go and build one of these. Also one that involves or that includes royalties. And I believe that Cadena is the only platform that has the actual at the smart contract level ability to require royalties get paid out to specified individuals when mm-hmm. a transaction occurs. I'm, I know there are other ones that have royalties in them, but there are ways to work around the royalties if you're clever about it. <laughs> Ours is the only one that has this, and it's largely because of some language features and paths that we were able to leverage so that you actually have this two-step bid and offer and bid-in, um, you know, this, uh, this offer and buy uh, process. And that's what allows you to have a fully customizable royalty payout scheme where if I'm the creator, I can specify that, you know, I don't want to have, KDA coin as the royalty payout I actually want to have KDA launch token for example okay. as the payout um, and it's really flexible but like you, that policy that you can make and that you can install into the Marmalade kind of infrastructure is fully up to you as the developer so I hear rumors about um, like a very novel sharing uh, policy that's being built but hasn't been released yet and I'm Currently bugging the devs to try to be like, hey, can you pass me it? I kind of want to see what this thing. Is like. So <laughs> yeah. definitely that for this month. I really want to see uh, you know Cadex uh, launch and start listing a bunch of tokens, um, and really like you know get the decks like really moving on that front. Uh, I'm really excited to see um, proper IDOs actually launching. I know uh, Tempe is one of the ones that's going yeah. out. I don't expect them to launch their alpha products you know this quarter, but yeah. I'm very excited to see like the actual launch of Tempe, uh, like the IDL on on top of Katie launch and to see how that goes. Um, You know, I have strong hopes for it. And I love the idea of having a decentralized, you know, kind of who owns the future style, uh, like uh, like sovereign data search engine. That to me sounds freaking great. I don't know how to build that. I do not have the relevant background or expertise for it. But the person who cracks that nut, I think, is going to figure out how to actually start to move us away from the centralized giants of the industry. Hopefully, if the UX is right and like its functionality is right, and you're able to do this without, you know, putting too much strain on the underlying blockchain, because blockchains are meant for like settlement and tracking. They're not meant for like raw computation on the scale of a Google. So it'll definitely have to be a layer one, layer two type of thing
0: yeah the way i think the way tmp is doing it they are not actually doing the transaction in the in the uh, the the search part is not on the blockchain it's just yeah. the 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 transaction but i think it's it has it has potential to 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 actually make a, a splash on the on the search engine um, world yeah speaking of uh, platforms building on on karina you you are in contact with most people uh, that most developers are at least a lot of them were building on Kadena. What is your their their feedback on Pact? Uh, do you think it's uh, they they have a good time working with it, or they miss anything?
1: The way that I've described Pact, which most developers um, that have learned Pact have echoed after the fact, is it's like learning SQL. It's not like learning a full language. Um, and for a developer, like SQL is like one of these domain-specific languages. You pick up. And it's really weird in the beginning because you're thinking in relational algebra and you're kind of scratching your head about, okay, how does this work? And then one day it clicks and then all of a sudden you can just move really quickly with it. And the feedback I hear about PACT is very similar where in the beginning, it's just like, okay, this is weird. Like I'm following the docs. Uh, Like I don't really quite understand like how are all these different pieces like fitting together. And then for most people, like one day it clicks and all of a sudden you can just start developing really quickly. Um, And that's really what you want in a smart contract language is a domain specific Thing that is built for the needs that a application on top of a blockchain have. This is where like the uh, whole you know, Turing completeness versus incompleteness comes in. Where if you have a you know a Turing incomplete language that is domain specific, you can do a lot more, a lot more safely uh, than you can if you have just kind of a free form language. And we see this with you know all the time with like the hacks that are on Solana and the hacks that are on Ethereum and the hacks that are all over the place, that if you have one of these, if, if your language is too big and is too quote unquote capable of doing anything, then you end up having a lot of trouble actually locking it down because you don't want smart contract language to do anything. You want it to do exactly what you think it's going to do. And you want it to be really clear and really lucid. And I think, you know, from my perspective, what developers have been saying is that, yes, we could use better um, documentation and better onboarding docs and better tutorials, But at the same time, once they pick it up, like, okay, this is actually really easy to use once you get past that point. Mm -hmm. Um, The overall developer experience is one of the high priorities just for this year. We just made a critical hire, a guy named Randy Dahl, um, who's coming in to take over building that out. He started literally on Friday, I flew down to Amsterdam to go to a JavaScript conference to go meet him. He's fantastic. He's the right guy for this. I've been looking for him for three years. I'm nice. Super excited about this. Nice, nice. And uh, you know, just building out the whole developer experience and making that much more seamless and much easier is incredibly high priority. It's just what I'm probably going to be focused on for the rest of the year.
0: Okay. So you touched a bit on, on the hacks that happen in Solana and Ethereum. uh so you think Pact and Karena will be able to handle that much better than the EVM and, the, and, and Solana languages do? Hacks happen.
1: There's, there's no doubt about it. Hacks happen. Um, yeah, we, we have a way better story for how you avoid it um, with PACT. We, we have a lucid language that's literally built for a, like a technical lawyer to be able to understand. Maybe not write, but at least read. And mm-hmm. in practice, we've seen multiple lawyers actually be able to look at PACT code to understand what's going on, which is different. Because if you look at solidity code, it's much harder to understand um, like I would never try to have a lawyer unless they had an engineering background try to yeah, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even for me personally, like I can code in solidity, but I won't because I won't trust it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this time last year, I was beginning to work on doing a bridge from us to Ethereum. and you know, we had you know problem Merkle proof validation um, in solidity, a contract built out for it. And we're starting to build out like some other features, and I just kept looking at it and I'm like, how in the world are we, do we, is this thing going to be safe? We're doing a bunch of custom code. Like with Solidity, there's vanishingly few people that can write new code that doesn't get exploited. And even with the best audits, it's next to impossible to actually have any assurance around it. And this was back before all the bridges kept getting hacked on Ethereum. Yeah. <laughs> but I was taking the stance internally of like, guys, I'm really not comfortable with this because I think people are going to bridge to a, you know, a large degree. And I'm pretty sure it's going to get hacked. That's going to be a problem. And then low, like eight bridges got hacked. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And bridges are hard, period. And a lot of them right now are centralized. Not that, you know, everyone says our bridges are decentralized, but like most of the bridges that exist today are very centralized. Um, I think, you know, Avalanche's bridge is one key that's sitting on a server inside of a trusted enclave in an Intel SGX module. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's, that's actually just a money transmitter. I don't know how else to put it. It's just a money transmitter. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this. So decentralized bridges, that technology is very important. It's very hard. Um, I'm looking now into the zero-knowledge proof and roll-up space because I'm starting to see some bridges that come out of there. And that, I think, may be the right way to do it, where you just have kind of trusted setup ZK, uh, you know, uh, ZK knowledge kind of kernels uh, sitting on two different chains, and they can transact with each other. And then that gets around a lot of the, guess there around just a ton of the issues with regard to, um, you know, exploitability and also like regulatory problems and a bunch of other things. But yeah, hacks happen. But that being said, like, PACT has, you know, this lucid language is meant to be very understandable. Um, it also has formal verification built in from the start. I wrote the first formal verification compiler for PACT. And now yeah, I think we're on version three of it now, and I'm sure we're going to be on version four at some point. I um, mean, you know, we have an auditing firm, NCC, that you can go to if you have your contracts and you want to get them audited, they do a fantastic job. And, you know, with all of this, like, we have the tools to be able to do novel applications, things that are more than just buying and selling tokens, and then a little bit extra on top of a public blockchain, without having to worry that someone's going to come in and hack the shit out of it
0: immediately. <laughs> okay. okay, glad to hear uh, backing up a bit, uh, back to, to monolith and NFTs. You know, this year was big for NFTs, like a bunch of, of new projects that came and did crazy runs, but also a lot of projects that are worth nothing uh, and are just money grabs. What do you think are uh, the, is the future of NFTs and what NFTs do you, th- do you see as coming up that are actually valuable and can make uh, a difference for, for people in general?
1: NFTs for me. So, back up a second. I'm uh, even though I am a like a uh, you know crypto entrepreneur founder type. I'm actually pretty risk averse when it comes to investment. So, like I didn't even think about buying into crypto until 2013, 2014. Even though I knew about it, and I've been following it since t- like 2009. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you ask me like you know which ones do I think are going to be valuable, I don't even know about the space at all. To me, NFTs right now feel like I look at it and I'm like. I don't really understand this. Like I can build the tech and I've been working on Marmalade and I think the tech is cool. (laughs) But I'm like, from a trading perspective, like I don't really understand this, but I've been here before with crypto back in 2009, 2010. So I know this feeling now. I'm just like, I can observe in myself. I'm like, I don't really get this, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be something. So I'm going to wait back and it's okay that I'm not going to be the first mover on this. There are other people that will be and they're going to make absolute bank off of it but i'm gonna wait back and see kind of how this evolves and where it goes because to me it feels like crypto back in 2010 2011 really and it just like really early except now crypto is except like it's backed by crypto and crypto's already got crazy so you're seeing (laughs) nft just blow up um incredibly quickly but there's something to it i don't quite see it personally yet i suspect that it's probably going to be something close to metaverse or ish, not like the Facebook metaverse, like that whole meta nonsense thing. But I mean, like metaverse is in the concept of a, you know, an environment in which um, the other digital economies of the world, which are gaming economies could actually come and transact and integrate and uh, interact with each other. I suspect it's going to be that combined with uh, crypto bleeding out into the physical world when it comes to, you know, either luxury or, um, maybe not even that much of luxury goods, um, and being able to pin you know digital identities to physical objects. I suspect it's going to leak out in that direction, and then after that, I have no idea. It'll be something. It has that feeling that it's something. I just don't quite know where it's going to go, but it just it feels like crypto in two thousand eleven. So I'll, just, I'll like I'll keep appraised of it, and then I'll eventually get involved.
0: Yeah, that's what I didn't see. So uh, I'm really interested in something uh, that came out of Karina Karina Echo. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that initiative? Yeah, so the Cadena
1: Ecosystem Fund is our VCR. Uh, it is, how do I describe it? It's similar to the, um, the larger uh, kind of ecosystem fund efforts that you saw out of other projects. It is in the same kind of theme, but it is structured differently. It's actually a proper VC fund. Um, I can't talk about too many details because they're so in the, they haven't, I can't even talk about why I can't talk about too many details on it specifically, but what it's there for is turbocharging the Kadana ecosystem okay. and really getting people the uh, you know, projects, um, the support that they need, the funding that they need um, to really take this thing to the next level. It is, it's, I also can't say that because of regular things, <laughs> <damn it. laughs> this happens sadly a lot. But it's about taking Cadena to that next level. Okay, okay. We, let's we let's cracked get... like the we cracked the billion dollar market cap uh, last year. I was super psyched to see that, mm-hmm. and it's about going to that next echelon. Yeah,
0: okay, let's keep it broad like that so you don't get in trouble. Um, okay, so I think we 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 covered most of what what we had to discuss. I think we, it would be cool to finalize on a, a broader question uh, for people who are maybe not involved in crypto yet, but but are curious. Uh, mm-hmm. Why blockchain so why did you why did you believe that blockchain is the future and you start building something on it
1: so why did I or why blockchain those are two different questions why did I was largely situational um, I had known that I wanted to do a tech startup for a long period of time and was waiting for the idea and you know having the background at the SEC and then at JPMorgan Morgan and having a co-founder like Stewart was ready to go on this and had all of his experience of BM you know, Stewart is a decade older than me. People don't quite realize, no, I think it's two decades older than me. You'll <laughs> tend to not know this. So we have a huge gap from the point of view of like co-founders. Usually it's only a few years, maybe 10 at max. So he has just this wealth of industrial knowledge that comes out of working in finance, you know, building exchanges, um, building market making engines, just doing tons of stuff over just decades that I couldn't bring to the table. Now you can't unless you've been in the industry for you know, 20 years. So... Why did I get into it? Because we had a we saw a problem, which we identified very specifically at uh, JP Morgan of blockchains are going to need X, Y, and Z by 2030 if they want to be anything more than just token trading toys. And we had a vision to solve it. And we went out and built it. And then we raised and we solved it. And now it is about, you know, realizing that potential, gaining more traction and taking it to the next level. And it's now at this point, it's just super fun. Because we have a great, very small team. We do like to keep Cadena pretty small. I think we're technically still under 15 people um, who are full-time employees, which is smaller than CADEX, for example. Um, <laughs> and we are te- we want to keep it that way because we don't want to have like, you know, we don't want to have CADEX under our roof. We want them to be their own thing, doing their own stuff that can have their own priorities and go at their own pace. Same with um, all the ideal platforms, same with every- basically everything else. But so that's you know why I got into the space. because um, we had just an opportunity and if you see it, you can't say no to it. Uh, But as for, also the technology is just really freaking cool. And from just a total, just pure nerd perspective, we built a, uh, you know, a giant multi-threaded Lisp machine in the sky that now runs. And it's just really freaking cool to see like Lisp in production, multi-threaded, just running globally. So like, just from a nerd perspective, like that makes me psyched. But, um, you know, why blockchain for, you know, kind of the layman? it's always hard to talk about because like even back with like the internet in the early days, you couldn't really talk about it. It's just, it is the next evolution of technology. And as we get more and more, you know, let's say we went 200, 300 years ago and the steam engine was invented and it was being used to like, you know, pump out, you know, uh, mines. That was, I think the first application of it. And you were talking to someone who had founded a, like a steam engine production company. It's like, why steam engines? Like, well, you know, it's only doing this, but at some point it's going to be used to do more and more other types of work. And, but it would have been very hard to say, oh, we're going to be blanketing the continent in railroads at some point. What's a railroad? And also all the ships are no longer going to use sails. And they're like, wait, what in the world are we talking about? But like, even then, like you could have pitched that in a way that would have made sense because it's not that far abstracted from the technology. It's not that far abstracted from like this base of effectively almost no technology, like leaves float on the surface of the lake. So you can talk about a boat as being like a big leaf that has like a thing that you can paddle, and then you talk <laughs> about a sail as like another leaf that sticks up and that gets blown by the wind. Whereas like when you're talking about something like the internet, it's very hard because you know like about like you know, even in the '90s talking about the future, the internet was hard because you're already so abstracted from just daily occurrences that you know you can talk about email, but you couldn't talk about Snapchat just wouldn't make any freaking sense because there's so many other kind of bits of technology that then you know start to involve and that it enables so decentralized computing is that next evolution and it's that much harder to talk about long term of like where it's going to go because it's so much more abstracted you can talk about the benefits of you know centralization and megacorps are a problem And the ability for people to have more fine-grained ownership of their assets and of their computation of their data is a just a good thing to have and to enable that we need to work on this and actually bring it into production and then bring it to the masses. Um, I suspect that why blockchain will make more sense uh, when the global economy, uh, when Basically quantitative easing finally catches up and like the United States is already experiencing it. Other countries have already experienced it, but you know, the U S is seeing some very high inflation numbers that are rather scary. And, you know, I was, you know, back when 2008 happened and the collapse happened, um, I was actually in a course with Schiller as the professor and case Schiller, the index was the thing that predicted the market collapse. So like was, I was at Yale, I was junior year, we were in the history of finance. And the market was collapsing, so he was able to get like <laughs> the president of BlackRock to come in and give a presentation. Ooh. And I believe that that, co- that those courses are actually recorded and on Yale's Open Courseware. They're kind of fascinating because yeah. it's all of like the big wigs from Wall Street who can you know, take the two-hour train right up. Actually, I'm sure they drove, and or probably took a helicopter and on them. And <laughs> like we're giving talks about like okay, like the economy is collapsing. Here's what happened. Here's how it works. So. And then we had quantitative easing and a lot of people forget like Bitcoin came out of just an anger, like almost a nerd rage at quantitative easing. And then it turned into crypto and quantitative easing has been going on ever since then. They never stopped it. We just kind of stopped talking about it because it seemed (laughs) like, oh, it's okay. But it seems like it's finally starting to catch up. So I suspect that by 2030, why blockchain and why crypto or at least why crypto will make more intuitive sense. But these things take a long time to shift. So there's that. Otherwise it, it's a hard, like if you could just get it into one soundbite that would sell everyone, we wouldn't have the, we wouldn't still have the adoption hurdle that we have today. It's going to take more kind of, um, you know, uh, reality coming and interacting with the technology and it being really demonstrated of you know, what it really can do um, for that to be more obvious for people. Smart contracts were a huge freaking step um, towards that. If we never had smart contracts, I don't think that we'd even have the possibility of being able to answer this question in kind of like a you know, a one or two sentence kind of way. And the problem with the smart contracts on Ethereum is as we talked about with hacks, like they're really, really hard to write um, in a safe way. So you can do very little besides just you know token transfers. You can now do a zero knowledge rollups, which are great. But at the end of the day, they're usually just transfers. So for the most part, Ethereum is like a token, like emitting and transferring machine, and it can't really do much else. And at this point, the gas fees are so high that and no one wants to even like be transacting yeah. on the base layer. And I'm by the way of the opinion that sh- that proof of stake in Ethereum will happen, but sharding in Ethereum or whatever their scaling is going to be won't. <laughs> and a large part of this is because it doesn't benefit the owner class in a proof of stake network to have low fees. Like, it, like, you want, like you want enough scale so that adoption doesn't get too truncated. But if you have too much, ado- if you have too much scale, then the owners aren't collecting the fees. And I know in Ethereum they don't technically collect the fees; they technically burn the fees. But it's the same thing. It, yeah. It's you know, it's know, half like it's six and one half dozen in the other. So yeah, I mean, it's sorry to go off on kind of a tangent of that because oh. I forgot to touch a base on it with the proof of stake yeah. thing. But yeah, I am of the opinion that proof of stake on Ethereum will eventually launch. Um, I do not think it will be cartel-resistant, and I'm pretty sure that the actual scaling of Ethereum won't happen. Or if it does, it'll be highly centralized. Yeah,
0: because the incentives
1: are are not there for,
0: for it to happen, right? It's the other and way around.
1: That's our problem with proof of stake: is that it doesn't align the incentives. Like the, it you know it removes miners, which like miners are important. I'm sorry, they just are. Like I, I get that on proof of stake network, but like miners are important. Like they they like they secure the network. And you know, removing them so that it's just whales and miners end up being kind of the same person gives them a hell of a lot of control in a way that I find to be quite dangerous.
0: Okay. Uh, very interesting to hear you talk, Well, Thanks a lot for, for coming up for our first episode. And maybe in the future we can catch up again and see how things are with Kadena and all the amazing DeFi and applications that are being built uh, and that, that will be released by then.
1: Yeah, I'd love to come
0: back on. It's great talking with you, Alfonso. Okay. Thanks, Will. See ya.
1: Thank you.
0: Bye. Okay, everyone. It's time to wrap up our first ever Katie Lounge. Huge shout-out to Will Martino for being part of it. On our next episode, we will have co-founders of Timpy, Gareth Evans, and Jörg Bus. Timpy is a decentralized search engine. Don't miss out. Until then, we want to share a project that you guys might find interesting DocuShield, a decentralized platform that runs on Kadena. DocuShield is guaranteeing that all your sensitive info stays private and secure forever. I really like the use case for DocuShield. We will leave a link to their website in the description. Okay, guys, see you next time for another interview, some more KDA projects, and of course, as always, everything on KDA Lounge.